From Nickelodeon Studios in Burbank, California, this is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Hector Navarro. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is a really, really special one. He's an Academy and Annie Award-winning director, producer, writer, animator, who's known for directing some of Pixar's best films. Starting at the company at age 21, he was the 10th employee ever hired, the third ever animator, and has since become an essential member of the senior creative team. It is my distinct pleasure to get to introduce to you guys, Mr. Pete Doctor. Thank you so much for joining it's us from up in Pixar. Here. This is fantastic. Yeah, I'm sitting up here in uh, in the development building. I was just up uh, working on whatever it is that I'm working on now. <laughs> Which it sounds like you can't say, but I'm going to try exactly. my darndest to get something out of you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So when did you become a storyteller? A lot of times people talk about, oh, story is the most important, and it definitely is. But my venue into this whole thing was technique. I was fascinated by flipbooks, the idea that you could have these little still images, and when they are flipped in succession, they look like they're moving, they're alive. And then, you know, as you get better, you realize, oh, you can kind of create the illusion these characters are thinking, that they have a life, you know. Um, and so that was my door into this, this idea of, of using technology, uh, cameras and things like this to make this uh, stuff look alive. And then I realized, well, if it's just moving, people are bored after a little while. So it makes more <laughs> sense to them and, and is more fun when it has a kind of a cute joke or something. And that, that led from one thing to another. Um, and I went to CalArts, the California Institute of the Arts. And one of the great things there was, in addition to all the classes, uh, one of the requirements is you make your own short film. And so I'd made a bunch of my own at home, which were basically ripoffs of other cartoons I'd seen, <laughs> um, which I think is a necessary step, you know. Um, but these were uh, a chance for me to kind of do what I wanted and make my own films and put them up there and watch them fail <laughs> or succeed in different ways. Uh, and I learned a ton from those. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you learn from that? The main thing for me was the opportunity to put these up in front of audiences and first of all it's just your your buddies and then ultimately it's like screening it in a large room full of people and just experiencing and of course at that moment your heart is going a million miles an hour the <laughs> adrenaline is up because this is the result of months of work to show just these couple minutes right so you have all this built up pressure and you're just like listening you're hoping for laughs and then nothing oh but there's a laugh there okay I'll take it and <laughs> and then you start to even as you're watching you're like if i had to milk that for just another second or a couple more frames it could have been funnier so it really hones uh your sense of how to communicate and what's going to work and what doesn't i think it's it's uh it's essential i remember reading uh, um an interview of steve martin and he was talking about working with this director frank oz now if you know frank oz he is the uh the guy who created miss piggy and grover and he had put in hundreds of hours of uh, appearing in front of an audience mm. you know, through his his puppetry, and um, Steve Martin said, "Who is this guy, and how does he have such sharp comedy instincts?" I think it's exactly because of all that time that he put in. I love the opportunity that all the web stuff uh, allows for people because you can put st uh, stuff out there and it's seen. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. But you don't get to see people's reaction to it. You know, there's no substitute for sitting in an audience full of people and hearing 
what works and what doesn't. Absolutely, yeah. I'm a big Muppets guy. I heard you were as well. Who's your favorite Muppet? Ooh, I would. I, well, I, I think I relate most to Fozzie, where uh, there's this, like I say, a sense of insecurity. Like he has that great, like, ah, I'm funny. And then there's the insecurity of, oh, I suck and I run away and hide. <laughs> Along with the Muppets, what kind of stuff did you love as a kid? Could you have a favorite movie or TV show growing up? There was uh, all the, I think they were desperate for programming, and they took all the <laughs> Warner Brothers cartoons and put them on Saturday mornings. And that's what I grew up on, you know, the Bugs Bunny. I could, it got so pretty early on, I could recognize, wait, that's Chuck Jones, and that's Fritz Freeling. I could kind of tell style and timing and things like that. Um, but yeah, I learned a ton from those. Was there ever a plan for you that wasn't, I'm going to work in the field of animation or in another field where you're like, I might want to try this? Yeah. Uh, growing up, I really had no thought about responsible things like how am I going to earn a living. <laughs> it was just, uh, I like doing this. Right now, I'm having fun making these shorts. And I guess I sort of dreamt of, because, you know, uh, I was lucky enough that my films got in uh, the Mike and Spike Festival of Animation, which is uh, how I got to see it with a live audience often. And uh, there were all these amazing filmmakers, Canadian, Yugoslavian, people from around the world who I think live in shacks, you know, because it's not like a way to make a ton of dough. Uh, <laughs> but they obviously make these great masterpieces. And that's what I pictured myself doing, not really thinking about the financials of it at all. Just <laughs> I thought shorts are awesome. I want to do this. Is that part of the reason, coupled with your interest and love of technology, that you ended up choosing to work at Pixar? Yeah, it was, a, well, for one, I credit my mother. I was born in a good year. Uh, you know, prior to 1990-ish, <laughs> uh, the animation was in a big slump. And a few, you know, the, uh, there was pretty much, for a long time, I know people graduating from CalArts, they could look forward to a promising career doing in-betweens on He-Man and the Masters <laughs> of the Universe or right. some kind of sh semi-schlocky-looking thing. And uh, when I came out, The Simpsons was starting up and Disney was starting up with Little Mermaid. And so it was a really great time. So a lot of this is luck. But there was a lot of opportunity, and I think it was mainly because of the short films uh, that even though all these things, like if you'd if you'd rewound uh, maybe four years, yeah. I would have pictured myself going to Disney or maybe even Simpsons, something like that. Sure. But it was it was between the technology which fascinated me, and then meeting the people at Pixar that just made me go, yep, that's the that's the place. I don't know where they're going. Yeah. There's no real talk of, of a feature at that time. Sure. It was all the short films, and they were just starting to, to do commercials, which is how I got hired. What kind of commercials did you work on? Uh, let's see. The first one I did was a Listerine boxing commercial. <laughs> it, was just, it was sort of a send-up of, uh, you know, a Raging Bull or something like this. Um, a little bottle of Listerine boxing against the camera. And then, let's see, we did Lifesavers and uh, Tropicana, a bunch of different things. And those were really cool because I feel like, in a way, you know, you read about the Nine Men talking about how the short films were their training ground. They mm -hmm. really learned a lot by just doing, cranking out these shorts. The commercials for us were kind of like that because you realized we've got to cram all this story that we've come up with in 30 seconds, <laughs> you know, not a frame more or less, and it has to sell the product. So it was really like a lot of good constraints for us. Yeah. Which a lot of times we should talk about constraints too, because I think people uh, sometimes have 
misunderstanding about that. Yeah, let's talk about that. I don't think people really understand, like you said, there's misunderstandings about constraints, but uh, how can constraints help storytelling? I was making a short film, which I is sitting in my garage now and it's unfinished, but um, <laughs> it was going to be a bunch of uh, first graders. And my thought was, I'm going to get them to come up with the story, do the character designs, and then I would do the animation, right? Yeah. So my genius idea was, I come in, I sit down with the first graders, and I'm like, great, what do you guys want to tell a story about? Crickets. <laughs> I literally sat with them for an hour and got nothing. <laughs> the next week I came with flashcards and they said they had subjects, uh, a description, and a location. And just by putting like a scared rabbit and um, angry lion go to space, that created uh, amazing stories, you know, by giving them some sort of box to play in. And so I feel like that was a great uh, learning experience for me of if you can do anything then you don't know what to do. But if you're limited, there are constraints on you, and sometimes the greatest things come out of that. What was it like being in the office, being at the studio, and the word came around of, let's do a feature? It was exciting, and, um, and we really had no idea what we were doing, which was kind of part <laughs> of the fun. None of us had really even worked on feature films of any kind, hand-drawn or whatever. Um, so we got together. I remember we had this offsite and there were, uh, maybe 30, 40 of us, uh, maybe less 25, something like that. We came up with a whole plan of how we thought we were going to do it. And it's hilarious to look back at today because, <laughs> you know, it's like one guy is going to do all the layout. We're going to have probably five, six animators because we, we were optimistic. We had no idea. Of course we ended up with 27, you know, today we have in the range of 50 to a hundred animators on a feature. So we didn't know what we were doing. What kind of memories come to mind when you look back at that first mad rush of making that first film, what kind of things come to your mind? It was like a bunch of guys making, it was an extension of school, you know. Uh, the building we were in was kind of, it was a, we rented and it was not super fancy. It was like, you know, scuff marks all over the walls and chips in the paint and things like this. And a literal kind of a warehouse in the back. And so it was just a bunch of guys goofing around, having fun. And it felt like the fact we were getting paid was like bonus because I felt like we would be doing this anyway. It was fun, you know, uh, and we goofed around with each other and we really did a lot of collaborative uh, filmmaking. You know, yeah. uh, uh, making your own films is amazing and I love, but it is fairly solitary and there was a new um, muscle that I needed to exercise this idea of collaborating with other people and taking ideas that come out of the group and building on it and, and shaping it and that has really continued. I think so many things, we, did, we had no idea, of course, um, making Toy Story, but it really shaped what Pixar is today. In what kind of specific ways has it shaped the rest of Pixar? I worked on story, and then uh, the idea was Andrew Stanton, who was also working in story, because everybody was working in story, yeah. <laughs> uh, Would he and I would go and become the supervising animators. Because we were, at that time, you couldn't find computer animators, really. There were only very small numbers, so we had to train everybody. Andrew and I and John were the only ones with experience on the computer. So the idea was he and I were going to go and become the supervising animators. Of course, story... Again, in, in our pie-in-the-sky view of this, we were going to come up with a film, figure out the story, finish the story, lock it, and then move forward into production. 
The reality, of course, is <laughs> the story is a complete mess all the way up until nearly the very end, and you're constantly shaping, reshaping. So Andrew stayed in the story while I went to uh, animation and worked with all these animators uh, coming up. And John, in those dailies was i always figured the again the way it w would work is we'd show our work we'd all be quiet and john would say uh change this and give me a little more overlap here and so on no the way he worked it was like he just turned to everybody and go well what do you guys think and everybody would start kind of commenting i think uh, if it was a little quicker woody would feel more this or i disagree i think he should be slower because of blah 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 so it became a real discussion and we all learned because of it and then at the end john would say great so here's what we're going to do. And he would summarize so you wouldn't leave confused. You know, you'd go away <laughs> knowing exactly what you need to do. Even though the directors get a lot of the credit, it's really a small team and, and eventually quite a large team of people who contribute mightily to this thing. I mean, the director is kind of shaping and guiding, but it's not that, you know, most of the stuff that people say they love about the films that I've directed, other people came up with that stuff. Sure, yeah. You know? <laughs> and I, I just kind of recognized that it was, it was great and put it in <laughs> um, and helped kind of shape it and cut the stuff that doesn't quite work and so on. So it's really a very collaborative um, place. And that came directly from Toy Story and directly from John. And we've tried to continue that since. Right before you guys started working on Monsters, Inc., you, in real life, became a father for the first time. How did that experience influence Monsters, Inc.? You know, I was a guy who loved going to work. I warned my wife, you know, look, before we got married, I'm going to be there a lot of hours, so I hope you're okay with that. And she would actually come after dinner. She would come back to, to work with me while I was animating on Toy Story because, you know, during the day I would... Uh, work with all the other animators. I would only have time to do my own stuff at night. So um, she would come and play games, video games, and then go to sleep. And I'd wake her up at two in the morning and we'd go home. <laughs> so it was a very kind of work-centric life for me. And then we had this kid. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the kid's at home. And you're like, I want to be with the kid, but I want to be at work. Uh, yeah. And that really became kind of the central focus of, of that film, Monsters, Inc., is this guy who... Uh, loves his job, and now, uh, of course, it's more more to it than what I was describing with food, <laughs> because their kids are illegal and toxic and all this. But uh, yeah. it was that central kind of understanding of my world is changing and my priorities in life are changing. So it really uh, contributed mightily to that film. What was the reaction like for you to see audiences react to Up when it came out? I remember the f opening night... Jonas Rivera, producer, and I went around. I think we went to five theaters. We'd go in, we'd watch about 20 minutes, and then we'd sneak out and go somewhere else just to see, <laughs> A, how many people are going, B, how do they react, and so on. And what's great is, of course, um, the married life sequence is pretty early in the film. So I would sit and look down the aisle, because I don't really watch the movie. I'd seen that enough. <clears throat> but I'd watch down the, down the aisle and see how people are uh, reacting and see a lot of eye wiping, yeah. <laughs> you know, rubbing of noses and things. And uh, that was really cool because there was some worry, 
You know, it's an animated film. The characters are very stylized. Gee, was that the right decision? I always felt it was, but sometimes from certain camps, people were like, oh, it's got to be more realistic if it's really going to capture people, people's emotions. I don't believe that, but um, it, was, it was a great day. As a fan of animation, I immediately honed in and loved the square design of Carl, the round design of Russell. I think we see similar things in Inside Out with the character of Anger, with all these different shapes. Mm. How important is is that level of character design to you, those sort of silhouettes and those shapes? I think it's what animation does so well is this idea of, of uh, caricature and eliminating details and, and strengthening, turning up the volume on what it is that is at the heart of the character. Um, Ricky Nierva, who did, did a lot of the designs on, on Up, really pushed that sense of squareness, but just enough softness. And, you know, Carl was a, he was a heck of a, I know Dave Mullins, who is a, one of the directing animators on the show, he worked tirelessly to get the sense of wrinkles and, and folds and things that happen naturally in a face, but make it still true to that sort of square, that design that we were looking for. Well, beautiful character designs in Inside Out. Absolutely wonderful. But we got to talk about that up sequence in the beginning. What was it like for you and your team to essentially develop that sequence, pitch it even? Was it something that you knew, this is uncharted territory for Pixar up to this point? Or was it business as usual and you guys were just going, yeah, we haven't had an opportunity to tell a story like this and this absolutely makes perfect sense? You know, we, we sort of backed into it. So the origin of the story of Up was the house floating away. And there was something about that that just felt like, oh, yeah, I want to get away from my life a lot of times. You know, I just am sick of people uh, and I just want to float away by myself. And yet, I'll, obviously, that's uh, not what I want in, in the end. And so that's kind of where the story started. Um, but that image needed a lot of setup and explaining, like, why is this man floating his house? Why isn't he just taking the train or uh, uh, an airplane or something? There's got to be a good reason why the house needs to float away. And so we went back to create this whole setup, a promise that he had made to his wife that was unfulfilled. And we initially scripted all that out. We had, we didn't mean to, but it was about 15 minutes worth of stuff um, between Carl and his wife. And it was very sweet and charming and it was emotional, but it was way long because it's only after she passes away that the movie starts. So uh, we needed to kind of shorten that. And that's where Ronnie Del Carmen, who is our head of story, he took that on and he kept saying, you know, I think this would be kind of cool if it was a silent thing, if there was no dialogue. And of course, we'd Bob Peterson and I had written it, mostly Bob. And so we were kind of in love with the script that we had and we were a little reluctant. But, you know, in the end, he prevailed and it was he, he did a fantastic job with it. You've talked about how you don't want your films to feel as if they're preachy, to feel as if there's an agenda being pushed. How do you guys go about finding these messages? Are they baked right into this initial concept? Or is it something that as you guys go along, you go, I think this is this universal truth that it's okay to be sad. And then you sort of continue to develop on that. It's usually something that comes from the director, I would say. And then, of course, the core team embraces it and uh, really finds how to do it, because it's one thing to say this idea, but it's another thing to actually put it into play. As I approach films now, I'm really looking for it, this idea of what is it about, what in my life, even though what you're going to see on the screen are monsters or bugs or cars, what 
can I te- what can I see up there that resonates with that that seems true for me? So that when I'm watching, I'm up there on the screen. You know what I mean? I project myself in what that character is doing, um, and so that's a very intentional thing that we're searching for at the very start of a project. Sometimes it's a little bit like. Um, a weird dream or going to therapy or something where <laughs> like, I don't know, something is intriguing about this. I'm just going to dive in and start to figure it out. And it sometimes takes a little while before you do. There was a moment that you had of, of doubt while you were developing Inside Out, when you were maybe thinking that the story wasn't quite working, when it was joy and fear, I believe is what it was. But I really want to ask you yeah. about this, and I want to make sure that, you know, that people have an opportunity to hear that it's not always just, oh, yep, we got it. Perfect. It's good to go. Yeah, I think doubt and uncertainty are essential parts of this whole thing, uh, that you have to kind of question at every phase, is this working? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, kind of folded in with that is the longstanding belief that we've had ever since I've been here uh, uh, that I think Ed Catmull and John Lasseter talk a lot about is it's not going to be right the first time. So I remember as a kid, I just had this idea that people were geniuses uh, like Chuck Jones or Walt Disney, and they would just have these brilliant flashes and it would be in their in, in their head. The whole thing would appear and they'd put it down and like, oh, wow, I want to be a genius. Yeah. And of course, the <laughs> truth is, if and, and this is true even of Miyazaki, who I, I admire and, and love his work. Um, but And I was lucky enough to have a chance to talk to him several times. And... and um, he's the same where you start with something and then you build on it and build on it and scrap something and tear this up and uh, add something else. And it's a messy, long process of iteration and reiteration and doing it over and over and over and over. So first of all, that's just like the, it's a little bit like knowing how the magic trick works because I think a lot of us want to believe, wow, it is magic. You know, that guy is a genius and they are. All those guys that I've mentioned are (laughs) geniuses, but part of the process is doing it over and over and over. And I think uh, the story you were talking about for me personally, it's uh, the doubt and uncertainty that drives a lot of this. Because if you come up with something and you're like, wow, that's great, which sometimes you think, you know, you, you're, you're totally in, and that's normal and fun. But then uh, unless you question it at every turn, you're probably going to end up with something fairly mediocre. It's <laughs> <is> the truth. <laughs> How has your storytelling evolved with the technology advancements that have happened at Pixar? Well, technology is always inspiring what we have going on. I think John was really wise early on um, on Toy Story. We, we, I remember a specific uh, thing we had. Uh, I think it was Andy wearing a uh, raincoat. And then we had another uh, gag or an element when Woody had his forehead burned by Sid with the magnifying glass. He ran over and dunked it in a bowl of old uh, dog water and a big splash and it was gross and stuff. And we were like, gee, are we going to be able to do this technically? And John said, don't worry about it. Don't think about technology. Just put the story together the way it needs to work. And then later we would go through and say, gee, it's going to be really hard to do this splash of water. It's going to be really hard to have Andy wearing a, a raincoat. How can we adjust this, not compromise the story too much, but still get what we need out of it? Um, of course, in the case of the dog water, we ended up with like a bowl of Fruit Loops. So you don't actually see <laughs> the water in there. We just had to hand animate some little pieces of cereal and it still worked. So we've never let the technology kind of limit us. Um, of course, we also work at a company full of computer geniuses. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
Pixar's known for doing great sequels. Sequels are a common thing in Hollywood, but you guys do it right, a lot of people would say. What are personally your thoughts on sequels? Sequels are equally difficult. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I always, the original films are very hard because you're creating not only these characters, but entire worlds and, you, you know, have to make sense and all this. But then sequels are coming along um, and you're inheriting all this stuff that you designed for the original film, which may not be what you really want for this sequel. Mm. Um, in other words, you know, this character has been designed in the case of of, let's just take uh, Woody. So Woody was designed to be a very kind of, his trigger at the beginning is when Buzz shows up, he realizes, I want to be the favorite toy. He's very selfish. And along the way, then he grows and becomes selfless to the point where he's willing to sacrifice himself so that Buzz can get back to Andy. He realizes what's really important in his life. So now we go to Toy Story 2, where do we start? You know, like Woody has already gone through his arc, right? So now what does he learn? Well, we have to create something else. And as we do it, we're like, you're, you're kind of shackled a little bit. You're held back by the stuff from the first one. A lot of times, and in fact, even some people have, have discovered this on MU, we, I think it was in a teaser or maybe it's in that walk to work sequence where Mike says something like, you and I have known each other since kindergarten. And in Monsters, we we tried a lot to make, make them meet in kindergarten, but it just did not work yeah. in the story. We wanted to see them meet as roommates at school, and so we chose to ignore that. But yeah. that's an example of the kind of stuff that can really get you into trouble. <laughs> uh, you're a member of the senior creative team at Pixar. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it sounds fancy when you say that, senior creative, but it's actually, again, kind of like, I don't know, we sit around and talk about ideas. <laughs> and sometimes we're in and other times we're not, you know, depending on the stage of production and the director and all of this. But in a perfect world, I think what uh, the benefit to the film with this is that you have, they're not executives, they're people who have made and are currently working on their own film, but they're not so deeply entrenched to be able to see, they, they, can't, they can see the forest for the trees. So when I'm in here, I'm working on a film and I'm you know so close to it, and I've worked on it for months and months, sometimes years, I'm not able to see it as a fresh audience member. So uh, we screen it and we have that, <clears throat> excuse me, we have that group come in and take a look at it, and then they are able to give us honest feedback and criticism and suggestions. So. A, you know these guys, they're giving ideas that they can see in their own heads, so they're thinking as filmmakers, it's actually usable stuff, and they're being honest, because if that if my film does well, they benefit as well, so, you know, because we're all working at the same company, so there's not this sense of competition, <laughs> I want to make mine better, I'm going to secretly sabotage yours, or <laughs> anything like that. So it's, it's a pretty ideal setup. What is the most essential element to a Pixar film. If you can boil it down to one sentence, what is the most essential thing for you as one of the original Pixar guys? Relationship. So uh, that may or may not make sense. But to me, at the key, like most people talk about story as what happens next. And I think that's important. But really, what I'm more interested in, I think people are, are generally more interested in, is the relationship between two characters. That's what ends up changing the character. That's what makes you lean forward and connect and love the characters. It's the relationship that characters have with each other that 
drives everything, and it's also the most difficult thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was the first released 3D Pixar film. And I wanted to ask what kind of challenges you faced on Up. And since then, Monsters, Inc. has been a converted re-release for 3D Blu-ray. The first two Toy Stories have as well. And every Pixar film since Up has been released in 3D. And I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts, some of the challenges and some of the surprises with working on a film in the 3D world. I think 3D, 3D is one of those things that kind of uh, splits people. You know, either you're a fan or you're not. John Lasseter is a huge fan. I think he even has pictures of his weddings, uh, his, his wedding taken in uh, 3D, in a 3D cameras, camera. Yeah. <laughs> and it really makes sense. It plays to the strength of, of computers, uh, computer graphics, the way we treat it anyway. It's, it's a model. It's like a dollhouse. So you can see it three-dimensionally very easily, you know, or relatively easily. There are still choices to be made, creative choices, um, which those guys do a fantastic job with. But there are some challenges. I mean, some things like uh, framing. Like if a character is in front of the the movie screen and then they move their hand down or they turn their head or something and they're cut off, suddenly um, it looks as though they're behind the screen that they're supposed to be in front of. And it's a weird thing that messes with your brain. It's also, it can be, and this is maybe why some people don't like it, it can be kind of nauseating if it's two-dimensional. If some of the moves that are fine in 2D make your stomach kind of start to do flips <laughs> in 3D. Sure. So there's a lot of things. I, I mean, for me, I think in a perfect world, if I were going to do a 3D film, I would just embrace it 100% and try to create the camera work and everything for that. Um, because of the way things are, um, I usually don't even think about the 3D. I just am, I'm more of a fan of traditional cinema myself. And so I use then the amazing team that we have to translate that and interpret it best they can when it goes into 3D. You've collaborated with the genius Randy Newman on Monsters, Inc., creating the music for that yeah. film. The genius Michael Giacchino on Up and Inside Out. How important is music to film, to your guys' storytelling? Absolutely key. Uh, I mean, geez, uh, music uh, has been an integral part of animation since there was sound, you know. Um, the things that uh, Carl Stalling and uh, uh, Disney did in some of those early silly symphonies, and uh, it's, it's just been part of what animation, how it, how it works. And it makes sense because it's such a it's a time based thing. It's a temporal medium, so you know you're thinking about um, uh, uh, the the timing, and and it becomes such a, an emotional part of the thing. So I think that's what both Randy and Michael are brilliant at is capturing. I don't know how you do this. Can you imagine? Okay, it's your job <laughs> to go away. I can't <laughs> and create music from nothing that makes people cry or makes them feel like they're. The, on the edge of their seats. I don't know how those guys do it. Michael Giacchino has a great story of working with Brad on um, Incredibles. And he said, listen, Brad sits Michael down. He says, listen, <laughs> you have the power to ruin my movie. <laughs> so don't screw it up. I'm really looking forward to Coco. Is there anything that you can say about that? Did you have a chance to work on it at all? What can you tell us about Coco? It's a, a beautiful film. It looks amazing. Uh, it's Harley Jessup who, who did uh, production design on Monsters we talked about earlier, as well as a number of other things, Ratatouille. So it looks fantastic. But more importantly, again, it's got that great sense of relationship. The characters uh, um, work, and it's very emotional, very emotional. 
Was there ever a point where Toy Story 4 wasn't going to happen? Or was it always kind of like, nah, back door's still open, we might do something with it? I think a lot of us sort of assumed that it was done, the Toy Story was done after 3, you know, because that had such a beautiful uh, closure to it all. Um, and we... We were very nervous even talking to ourselves. We, we John and, and, and Andrew and I kind of swore secrecy about this until we felt like, okay, is there something there? So we just wouldn't even scare other people at work. We just kind of talk about it on our own <laughs> behind closed doors until um, Andrew came up with something that felt like, oh, this has got something. And then, then we started moving forward. And, you know, it's, gee, we, we understand it's with great trepidation that we move forward on this. I mean, these are characters that people really love and and we're working our hardest to make sure that we're bringing people somewhere new and doing something that you have not seen already uh, on the first three. What is something that you would tell yourself, your 21-year-old self, a piece of advice that you would give yourself first starting out? I would say draw more because I'm always frustrated by my lack of ability to to very quickly put something down. Man, we have these story people here who... Uh, do not play Pictionary against them because <laughs> you will be taken down. And they're really fast. You know, they, they just can sketch anything. And even if you're working in CG, you're not you're going to have that on the screen. You uh, will never regret being able to draw because it's the way you communicate with people. You just like sit here and sketch something. Can you make the shot more? I was thinking more of a down view like this. Da, 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 and there, there it is. And I think the other thing is just do it. You know, there's a lot of times when you feel a little bit scared that maybe I'm not good enough or maybe I, I, I'm just, what if this sucks, you know? And it might, it might suck, but I think that's the only way you're ever going to make headway. It's the only way you're going to learn is by putting stuff out there and doing it. It's, you know, the analogy of, uh, I've said before is like you would never give a kid who'd never played the violin before uh, uh, an instrument and say, you're on Carnegie Hall tonight. You know, <laughs> it would be, it would be stupid. You have to practice for years and years and years and making your own films and doing it and doing it over and over is the equivalent of that. Just practicing. Beautifully said. Well, Pete, thank you so much for coming in today. This was lovely. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks again. Well, thanks, Hector. It was nice talking with you. Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed our conversation with Pixar mastermind Pete Doctor as much as we enjoyed having it. Huge thanks to Pete for sharing some of his time and his insight and sharing the Pixar perspective on the thing that we love so very much, which is just animation, period. Guys, if you don't want to miss an episode of the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast, we make it easy for you. Just go to nickanimationpodcast.com for all of the old episodes and a bunch of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together, this podcast podcast is produced by Jonathan Highlander, Dana Vasquez Eberhardt, Kelly Smith, Andrew Hubner. Original music by Useful Creatures. This week's episode edited by Josh Caldwell, Jonathan Highlander. All of the incredible social media for our podcast is made by Narbe Manassians, Sammy Armager, David Watson. And thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to, Manny Gralva. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast and keep watching cartoons. Cartoons.